Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. This morning, we are going to be discussing the Torah portion known as Vayera. It begins in Genesis 18 and concludes in Genesis 22, verse 24. This parasha, this weekly reading, houses some of the most important and interesting stories in the entire book of Genesis. A brief synopsis for those who are unfamiliar with it. In this parasha, God reveals himself to Abraham three days after the first circumcision at age 99. But Abraham rushes off to prepare a meal for three guests who appear in the desert heat. One of the three, who tradition says are angels disguised as men, announces that in exactly one year, the barren Sarah will give birth to a son. Sarah laughs. The word laughs becomes the basis for naming her child Isaac. As the parasha continues, Abraham pleads with God to spare the wicked city of Sodom. Two of the three distinguished angels arrive in the Stoom city, where Abraham's lot extends his hospitality to them and protects them from the evil intentions of the Sodomite mob. The two guests reveal that they have come to overturn the place and to save Lot and his family. Lot's wife turns into a pillar of salt when she disobeys the command not to look back at the burning city as they flee. While taking shelter in a cave, Lot's two daughters, believing that they and their father are the only ones left alive in the world, get their father drunk, lie with him, and become present. The two sons from this incident, according to the Torah, father the nations of Moab and Amnon. Abraham, meanwhile, moves to Gerar, where the Philistine king Abimelech takes Sarah, who is once again presented as Abraham's sister to his palace. In a dream, God warns Abimelech that he will die unless he returns the woman to her husband. Abraham explains that he feared that he would be killed over the beautiful Sarah. This is, of course, a reminder of the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Pharaoh. God now remembers his promise to Sarah, enunciated by the angel earlier in the parasha, and gives her and Abraham a son who is named Isaac. Yitzchak means, will laugh. Isaac is circumcised at the age of eight days, and Abraham is 100 years old, and Sarah 90 at the child's birth. Hagar and Ishmael, Abraham's handmaiden and his first child, are banished from Abraham's home and wander in the desert. God hears the cry of the lad and saves his life by showing his mother a well. Abimelech makes a treaty with Abraham at Beersheba, where Abraham gives him seven sheep as a sign of their truth. You can imagine that in my summary, I've left out some of the more significant parts of these stories. And finally, as if there's not enough in the parasha, we reach chapter 22, which begins with God tests Abraham's devotion by commanding him to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah, 
which later tradition will call the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Isaac is bound and placed on the altar, and Abraham raises the knife to slaughter his son. A voice from Hezen calls out to him, a ram caught in the undergrowth by its horn is offered in Isaac's place. Abraham receives the news of a daughter, Rebekah, to his nephew, Bituel, and the parasha ends. It is a parasha chuck full of interesting stories, some interesting verses. And with me this morning to talk about the parasha is Rabbi Norman Cohn, the founding rabbi of Beth Shalom Congregation in Minnetonka, Minnesota, where he now serves as Rabbi Emeritus. Rabbi Cohn is the author of the book entitled Jewish Personages and a book entitled Sacred Architecture, The Rebuilding of Bet Shalom Congregation. He is a contributing author in a text entitled Text Messages, a Torah Commentary for Teens, and he has an abiding and deep interest in Jewish-Christian dialogue and the similarities in their texts. Rabbi Cohn, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Well, thank you so much, Rabbi Garden. Um, I've been looking forward to this opportunity to speak with you and with your uh, listening audience. Well, it's a pleasure, and we have the joy of speaking about one of the more challenging parashiot, one of the more challenging weekly sections of the Torah. Um, oh, yeah. My listeners have heard a brief overview, and you and I are going to begin talking about uh, Abraham and the uh-huh. test in uh, chapter 22. So perhaps for the listeners, you can give us a brief overview of the story. Okay. Well, the story goes that um, Abraham is uh, called by God to take his son, his only son, Isaac, and to offer him up uh, as a sacrifice. And, you know, we, we read this text, and not only is it part of the weekly Torah portions, but we read it a second time on the high holidays, which is the, the time that every, you know, most Jews come to services. And we have a little joke that, you know, there are some... Jews are revolving door Jews in on Rosh Hashanah and out on Yom Kippur, and I've learned through my years of interfaith dialogue that in Christianity, they, there are people like that are often called C&E Christians, you know, in on Christmas and Easter. Out on but, Easter, uh, right. So there's yeah, a parallel there. There's, a, there's, there's so many parallels to our faith, and this story will provide that. But let me finish this story. So he, he takes him... And uh, he's ready to offer him up. I'm skipping all the details. Sure. Uh, you, can read, you can read Genesis 22 for them. And uh, at the last minute, uh, an angel of God comes and tells him to stop. Don't do this. This isn't something that God wants you to do. Instead, take this ram. And Abraham turns around. He sees a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And he takes and sacrifices that ram instead, which... By the way, it's one of the reasons why this story is read on Rosh Hashanah on, on Jewish New Year, because we blow the shofar of a ram or another animal, because we want to remind God of the promise God made after that event. He said, whenever in the future uh, your people um, are coming before me and uh, are being judged like we are on high holidays, I will always remember what you were willing to do. You didn't do it, but you were willing to do it, and that will serve as merit. In my uh, in my deliberations every year about um, what's going to happen people. next year of life, 
Right. Yeah, and and exactly, so for, exactly for our right. listeners, just a reminder that Rosh Hashanah is considered one of four Jewish New Year's. It's the new mm-hmm. year of the counting of years, at which point we turn the calendar with regard to the year. And uh, according to the Jewish tradition, this is 5780. And in the Torah, mm-hmm. the only expression about the holiday is that on the first day of the seventh month of the year, it shall be mm-hmm. a sacred occasion to blow the shofar. Right. Uh, and so Rabbi Cohn has reminded us that the shofar um, is the connection to the story we're about to discuss. So Abraham takes his son up to the hill and he uh, lays him on the uh, altar and he's about to sacrifice him. And there are so many parts of this story that call out to us, but you in particular thought with your um, concern and your interest in Jewish-Christian relations that there's something here that resonates with the story of Jesus. Very, very much. Um, Yes, I mean, like you, Rabbi Garden, in a congregation, every year this is such a troubling story that we get the questions from our congregants. Why? Why? Why does this story appear? Why would a father take his son to sacrifice him? And, you know, over the years, we're not the first ones to experience this modern times. Through Jewish literature, and and you and I have studied this, uh, Rabbi Garden, um, there's so many times in history that our ancestors were troubled by this, and they wrote different kinds of explanations, and some of them are well-researched. You know, one of them is, well, the story is a protest against the sacrifice of children that took place by the pagans with whom the Israelites were living. You know, others point out, well, it's to teach us the importance of sacrifice in our lives. And, you know, all these things make sense, but none of them really um, appeal to our emotions that are so troubled by this parental child situation. And, um, and throughout my years, I, I, I enjoyed studying because it always also troubles me. One of my favorite books was um, the Last Trial by Shalom Spiegel, which he wrote in Hebrew and then translated in English. And uh, The Last Trial tries to say this is what um, happened to the Jews in the Middle Ages, because uh, as we lived in these countries, we were treated much like Isaac was by his father, but we were sacrificed in many ways. And, uh, and that led me to the curiosity. My field of studies is New Testament, and um, one of the things I love is the, the role of Jewish Bible characters in the New Testament. And um, Moses and David and Abraham appear you know, 80 and 75 and 69 times, 59 times. Uh, that's a lot of appearance of Jewish characters. And um, as, as I study, and as anybody who reads the New Testament knows, one of the central stories is the Passion narrative, the crucifixion of Jesus. And as we read this story, which I've read many times, and now I, I'm happy to say I'm reading it in Greek because um, I think it's important for me to read the New Testament in Greek just as it's important for me to read the Jewish Bible in Hebrew. Right. The original um, language yeah. of the New Testament is Greek, it, right? It's yeah. not a translation. The Hebrew no. the Hebrew text was translated into Greek somewhere around the 
third century. Um, Correct. And, yeah. But the original Gospels were written directly into Greek, not into Aramaic, the language that Jesus would have spoken. So there's yeah. a parallelism that you want to talk about in terms of how the writers of the Gospels might have understood, because they would have been very familiar with the story of Genesis 22, how they oh, yeah. would have understood the test of Abraham with regard to their newly emerging sense of theology. Oh, exactly on point, Rabbi. Um, yes, I think that when the New Testament was written, by the way, just as, and I apply the same principles when I study the text of the, Jew, the Hebrew Bible, um, writers, um, though we believe, as, as you know, religious people today, that the, these, these texts are sacred, you know, many believe from the one point of view that they are written by God, and others believe they were inspired by God. I happen to be one who believes that people wrote the Bible, both the Jewish Bible and the New Testament, inspired by God. That's what makes it divine. And they have in their mind lots of other stories. We're affected by the culture in which we live. And I believe that when the New Testament writers were writing, they had in their mind certain kind of scenarios. In the Psalms, we read of um, a scene that's very similar to what happens when Jesus is taken to be crucified. You know, they, they cast lots for his clothing, and they surround him, uh, just like one of the Psalms speaks. And then he says, um, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Coming from Psalms. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And um, I think, in my studies, I saw the appearance of Moses and Abraham, and they appear right there for good reason. I mean, um, when Jesus goes up for the transfiguration, he's got Moses and Elijah on either side of him, and they appear because he's getting the, the, the approval of the five books of Moses and the prophets, which at the time was the canon of the Jewish tribe before writings was added. And um, they appear in a very distinct way. But I also discovered that there's the appearance of characters not by name. And when I read the crucifixion, I think that as most many people read the crucifixion, we can see echoes of the story of Abraham and um, and Isaac. For example, um, both Sarah, the mother of Isaac, and Mary are told, much to their surprise, that they will bear Isaac and Jesus respectively. That's one point. Isaac and Jesus are born under quote miraculous conditions. Sarah is ninety years old. Mary is a virgin. The binding of Isaac is ostensibly the sacrifice of Isaac, Abraham's, quote, only son. The crucifixion is the sacrifice of Jesus, God's only son. Isaac, on the way to his death, carries the wood for his sacrifice. Jesus, on the way to his death, carries his cross. Isaac accepts his fate with perfect obedience. He's perfectly silent, not arguing with his father. Jesus offers himself in a similar fashion. He is practically silent when interrogated by the Roman authorities. So that's the text itself. And if you look into the Midrash, which are the Jewish stories about the text, it's the way we read the text, it's the glasses we wear as we read, just as for Christians or Muslims, um, the glasses are different, but they read the same text. Uh, Christians have the New Testament, the writings of the Church Fathers. Uh, Muslims have Hadith, which is similar to our Midrash. Right. And, and, that, and, that's, and that's such a wonderful parallel for me, because... I enjoy discussions when I we talk about these things. So, so let me interrupt for one second. Before we go to of the course. Midrash, you've um, offered us these parallels between the Gospel text and the Torah text of Genesis 22. 
Yeah. Um, do you, what do you think was the intentionality of the gospel writers with creating, with regard to creating this kind of parallelism? Because you're suggesting that it's not an accident, that there are too many parallelisms for it to have been uh, simply uh, serendipitously existing. So what was the intention, as you understand it, of the Christian authors? Well, that's, that's a great question because it leads to one of the big issues in dialogue. Um, for two, almost 2,000 years, um, our dialogue wasn't dialogue. It was uh, polemics. It was uh, arguments against each other trying to prove the superiority of one religion over another. But you know, since Pope John Twenty-Third and other great leaders in, in the variety of churches have done is they've opened the door for this dialogue, and, um, and so much has taken place since then. And in those discussions... One thing is clear, that is, the New Testament is establishing itself, and in the early days it was as a replacement of the Old Testament, or an improvement of the Old Testament, that was called supersessionism, or triumphalism, or as we call it, replacement theology. But in modern times, we realize that that kind of um, attitude between our faiths, whether it be Jews about Christians or Christians about Jews, does not lead to respect and cooperation. Instead, we understand that God... Um, can covenant with more than one people in, in more than one way. But when the New Testament was written, the, mo- the more they could link themselves to the Old Testament, as Christians call our, our sacred scriptures, um, they could establish authority. That's why Moses and Jesus appear, uh, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus uh, on the mount in Matthew during the Transfiguration scene. And that's why, in fact, Matthew was chosen to be the first of the Gospels, because um, Matthew was not written first. Mark was written first. Most scholars would agree. And I say scholars, Christian scholars. Um, Matthew was written first, uh, uh, not first, but it appears first in the New Testament because it serves as a natural link. It's filled with quotation after quotation from the Old Testament. Right. And, so, so in a sense, you're yeah. reminding our listeners that um, as Christianity developed into a separate faith perspective. Um, not simply uh-huh. a uh, a um, vestige of a different notion of Judaism, but as it emerged right. into something very separate, they wanted to prove their uh, validity by connecting themselves to that which already existed, Judaism. They didn't want to connect themselves to paganism of Rome or uh, the vestiges of Greece. So they used the characters of Torah of the Old Testament to say, see, we are in the line of uh, transmission of a tradition. And it's not the same tradition, it's a variation on the tradition. And of course, lots of people would speak about the varieties, not just of um, Moses and Elijah appearing in uh, medieval art, but the notion of uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount uh, paralleling the Moses' ascent onto Mount Sinai and bringing down the tablets of the law. And we could go through both texts mm-hmm. and, and find them. But you've raised the really interesting question about sacrifice and that Jesus is sacrificed in a parallel manner to the story of Isaac. But why 
Um, and though you've mentioned um, Shalom's story in which it appears that Isaac is actually sacrificed, tradition doesn't Correct. hold to that, but Jesus actually is sacrificed, but Isaac isn't. So in your studies and in your mm-hmm. conversation with Christians, what leads to that um, difference? Why does Isaac survive what appears to be the test, as the text calls it? Abraham is tested by God. Um, yes. So Isaac Ibra- Ibra- survives that, but Jesus, in his narrative, doesn't survive, even with all the parallels. Right. Why does one die? Well, in, I, 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 yeah, I mean, from your I perspective, I don't suggest that there's one answer to this. No, and there isn't one answer. We know that originally the story was probably written as a protest to the pagans who sacrificed their children. But I think when we turn to the parallel between Jews and Christianity, there's something more involved in there, because I don't think it's a polemic against that. I think it's about the difference between our concept of sin and salvation. We use those words, sin, salvation, and we need to define them. They mean different things in Judaism and different things in Christianity, just as the word Messiah means different things in our faith. And I think that this story... Um, was chosen by the rabbis, I think, specifically as a polemic to read on the High Holidays and say, look, um, this is the way, and the High Holidays are a way of our dealing with sin and, and repentance. That's what the, the key is there, that um, that's not the way that we Jews believe. We don't believe that someone else died for our sins, although we respect that as a very meaningful part of Christian theology. But that's because the understanding of sin is different. There, in Judaism, there's no original sin. Uh, in Judaism, we're born with potential for sin. As Christians would say, in Adam, we all sin. Jews would say, like Adam, we all sin. And that's a very important Significant difference. So, uh, absolutely. I very, mean, the theology, yeah. as it emerges in a self-defining Christianity, and the theology, mm-hmm. as it emerges from the rabbis separating themselves from Israelite theology, certainly makes for two great traditions uh, running parallel tracks, um, using the same concepts, but definitely running parallel to each other. And leaving aside the historical issues of intersection, they are trying Mm -hmm. to offer to their adherents um, answers to the uh, uh, serious questions of life. What is sin? Why do good right. people uh, die when bad people seem to be rewarded? And we can go through the list of all of those. So Abraham saves his son through God's intervention, and right. and Jesus is sacrificed um, as a means of establishing God the Father's hegemony in the new Christian tradition. Um, and so I want to make sure that we just answer one other question before we move to another topic, and that is in the gospel account, of course, yes. you have this notion of resurrection. Mm-hmm. So is resurrection the parallelism to Isaac not being sacrificed and getting up off the altar? But I, I don't know. That's, that's, that's an interesting perspective, but I would say that um, when we examine the rabbinic text, we find that the Jews also believe in resurrection. So that's an idea that we share, although the way we bring it to our text is different. Um, there is the idea of resurrection in Judaism and a time of a Messiah, which is yet to come. But these provide great, um, great discussion points. I, I just want to give you an image that I like to use, because I think you were hinting at it very much in what you said, Rabbi. Um, 
we often, many people often picture the relationship of Judaism to Christianity as a tree to its roots, and um, that's an easy symbol to picture, but I always draw this on the board when I'm teaching classes and having discussions, um, that that's not a good parallel to you. That's not a good symbol to use, because in that picture, the Jews are the roots, the Old Testament, and Christianity is the tree, the New Testament, and the conclusions we can draw for that are not all positive. The Jews remain underground. The right. Jews' role is really to provide substance for this new tree. I would rather suggest, and this image is something I use all the time, uh, roots, which represent not Judaism, but ancient Israelite worship, which is clearly different than what we do as Jews. You, you can't walk into a synagogue today and see sacrifices of animals going on and priests with incense. Um, no, it would make for no, a messy bar mitzvah if the 13-year-old exactly. had to uh, slit the throat of a pigeon on the altar. Um, exactly. And, and 2,000 years ago, when the temple was destroyed, it wasn't just the beginning of Christianity. It was the beginning of rabbinic Pharisaic Judaism, which we live today. My, our teacher, Jacob Adachowski, may his memory be a blessing, wrote a book called Heirs of the Pharisee, H-E-I-R-S, and, and, and we today see ourselves as heirs of the Pharisees because... Unlike the picture that they're often painted as trying to trick Jesus and whatnot, that was a product of the time, the way they were depicted after the Jews and Christians were separated and to curry the favor of Rome. So that those there's three trees growing out of those roots, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and um, those roots nourish all of our modern religions, and we have separate trunks, but many of the branches of our trees intersect. It's great to see one of our religions and our religion growing out of that, and I always say, what tree is your religion? And the answer isn't Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. The answer always is my religion, because everyone who has religious faith should really see themselves as a legitimate tree rooted in the soil of Root, Rooted in the foundational uh, belief of one God which emerges that's, out that's of right. uh, Israelite religion and appears to be that which has survived over the millennium. We have just a few minutes left, and I want to ask you about one perception, and that okay. is when Isaac um, returns from the yeah. experience on Mount Moriah, um, mm -hmm. he doesn't appear to speak to his father in the text again. Correct. And the next uh -huh. Right? right? So yes. the next episode is about Abraham finding a wife for him, and Isaac becomes mute until he has a family on his own. Um, mm -hmm. And in many ways, of course, um, Jesus um, doesn't really speak uh, to the uh, adherents of new Christianity after mm -hmm. the uh, experience of the crucifixion. Is that another similarity? Or is that I like that. I, you know what, I, I haven't really given that a lot of thought, but I'm going to because what you raised is is, um, is fascinating to me. That's great. Um, I was thinking of the fact that Isaac doesn't speak to Ishmael until the funeral of their father, Abraham. Right. And there they are as pallbearers and burying their father, and uh, Ishmael says, Isaac, you know, I left when you were really young, and uh, I never got a chance to tell you all the horrible things that... Uh, that our dad did to me. He kicked my mother and me out when you came along and treated us miserably, left us to die in the desert. And he turns to Isaac. He says, I'm sorry to tell you. He says, Isaac, wait till I tell you about how he tried to kill me. Right. And, and, and they had this common bond, Ishmael and 
and Isaac, who um, you know represents Jews and Arabs today, Muslims. I'm sorry, Muslims and Jews today. Um, so it's have amazing. this common bound of an aggressive yes, but, uh, mm-hmm. ancestor. Um, I'm cognizant of our time, and so I do want to thank Rabbi Norman Cohn uh, for joining me this morning. As I mentioned in our introduction, Rabbi Cohn is the author of a number of important texts uh, about the biblical text and about the intersection between Judaism and Christianity. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear a podcast of our broadcast on iTunes or at the CHRI website, www.chr.ca. I wish you shalom and good morning. Behold.